Our text this morning is John chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we come into your presence and we ask you, Lord, to speak to us from your word, that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would open up our minds, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ glorious in your word. Help us, O Lord, to know your will, Help us, O Lord, to obey your will. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we have just concluded an eight-week series on a study of the fundamentals of the faith. We looked at what we believe from the Apostles' Creed. We looked at the Bible and at God the Father God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the church, judgment for sin, forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body. And now, for the next three weeks, we are going to turn and look at what we as a church will do with those beliefs. We confess that the scripture teaches these foundational truths But we here at Christ Church must have a vision for taking these truths to a lost and dying world. And we do indeed have a vision. It is printed on the first page, the cover of your bulletin, if you've never had a chance to read it. Our vision is that Christ Church exists to make mature disciples who will worship, know, and serve Christ so that his church and kingdom are powerfully extended in Katy and beyond. What does that mean? That's an awful lot of words in a vision statement. But a vision statement should be more than just a statement about what we think is important. A vision statement should be something for the church to act on, to take the truth of God's word out into the world. 
And so I think we can distill down what Christ's church is committed to in this vision statement to three foundational principles. Worship God, make disciples, serve the kingdom. It is intentional that each one of these phrases has an active verb in it. For you see, as the church of Jesus Christ, as a portion of the church of Jesus Christ, Christ's church is on a mission. A mission given to her by her Lord, Jesus Christ. And so today, we begin with the first and most significant. Christ's church exists to worship God. Now, what does that look like? What should it look like? I'd like us to see three things about worshiping God from the interchange between our Lord Jesus Christ and the woman at the well. First, we worship the one true God. That is who we worship. There are no other gods but the one living true God of the Bible. Second, Jesus tells us that we are to worship in spirit, that we are to be active, that we are to be encouraged on by the Holy Spirit, that we are to engage in worship. And then third, Jesus tells us that we worship in truth, that our worship is God-directed, that our worship is not optional, but it is something given to us by the Lord God Himself in His Word. We worship the one true God, we worship in spirit, and we worship in truth. Let's begin then by thinking about how we are to worship the one true God here at Christ Church. Now, the first and most important question about worship is the who of worship. It's not the how. Everything that we think about the how takes a back seat to the who or the why of worship. Let me see if I can put it to you this way. If the best mechanic that you had ever met showed up at your home and came to your garage and lifted your hood and proceeded to pull your engine apart, describing in intricate detail what each piece is and what it does, how each part works, if he cleaned it, and oiled it, and laid it out orderly and neatly on a sheet in your garage, and then when all of that was concluded said, well, see you later. He wouldn't be doing you much good, would he? You'd say to yourself, what do I do now? I can't put this back together, and I can't drive my car anymore. Why did you even do this to my car? It can be the same sort of thing if we approach worship first with the how, without thinking about the who. The most important thing about worship is that we worship the one true God. All our precision, all our intensity in worship is lost if we worship the wrong thing. Now Jesus is getting at this with this woman. Now I want you to notice how this conversation goes. For those of you that thought that the worship wars only started in 1980 you have to realize that the worship wars are actually in the New Testament. Because she comes to Jesus and says, you know, our fathers, we worship here on this mountain. But y'all, y'all worship over there in Jerusalem. 
Now tell me, which do you think is better? Which is right? Help me figure this out. See, the first question that she wants to get at is the rightness of worship. Now, it's very ironic because if you look with your eyes up just a verse or two, you will see this question comes completely out of the blue. And it is a reaction to her trying to dodge Jesus challenging her on her life. Jesus has just told her, you know, you have too many husbands. And she responds by saying, what do you think the best way to worship is? Talk about a dodge. But Jesus will not let her control the conversation. He doesn't want to focus just on the the what or the how. He wants to focus on the who. Look at verse 22. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. That's the difference, woman. Do you know the God who is to be worshipped? Because if you don't know the God who is to be worshipped, it doesn't matter where you worship. And if you worship the true living God, you can worship Him anywhere. The most important question is who do we worship? Now, this is helpful for us as a church on our mission in Katy, in Houston, and beyond because the world thinks that it does not need to worship God. And so as a church... Following the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to understand that, that most of the world doesn't want to and doesn't worship God. As a matter of fact, most of the world would be perfectly happy never to think about God. Think about how many distractions are available in the world for people to immerse themselves in so that they can forget about any thoughts of God. There's entertainment, there's sports, there's vacations... There's work. We do everything we can to avoid thinking about God. And even when people think about God, it's not worship that they have in view. Think about people around you when their thoughts turn to God. The average teen never thinks more of God than after they have just completed a test they did not study for. Oh, Lord, please help me get a good grade on that test. I don't want to have Dad yell at me. Or, after they have wrecked the family car. Lord, I don't want to die at 16. Please. Please make the car magically put itself back together again. You see, that's when people seek God. When they're in trouble. And they want a way out. They don't normally look to the Lord... In worship. And that's because, in general, people don't want to submit to God. And that's all worship is. It's submitting to the one who created you. And so instead, the world would rather have a series of vague and unbiblical ideas about God that they hold on to, to avoid knowing the true God. And because of that, there is a great deal of misunderstanding about who God is in our world today. People want to make God in their image. They want God to be like them, to like the things they like, to dislike the things they dislike, to hurt the people they want to see hurt. And people want God to serve them. And so what they do is they keep things vague and they don't look to Scripture. 
Have you ever noticed that while there is an increasing hostility in America today to biblical Christianity, there is no such hostility to spirituality? The last time I looked, Oprah was still selling tons of books, tons of movies, tons of shows by being spiritual. She doesn't talk about the God of the Bible, but she talks in a vague way about the spirit and about a higher power and about an other being. People are very comfortable speaking vaguely in that way because it makes no demands upon us. We don't have to worship a vague higher power. But the God of the Bible... It's precise. The God of the Bible has told us who He is. He has told us what He loves. He has declared to us His will. So we must remember this. As we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must remember that the Lord has put us in a world that is confused about God and that would like to avoid Him. And so this affects our worship. Because you see, what our worship is at its core is a declaration about God. When we worship God, we instruct people in our worship. You see, our worship is not just about us and how we feel. When we worship God, we testify about who He is. We testify about what He has done. This is what the psalmist does over and over again in the book of Psalms. Let me give you just one small taste of this. The Psalms has often been called a compendium of worship within the Bible. And if you go to Psalm 95, you will see the call to worship. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all. The psalmist is teaching about God. Psalm 96, O sing to the Lord a new song. O sing to the Lord all the earth. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Again, instruction to the world about who God is. Oh, sing to the Lord, Psalm 98, a new song, for He has done marvelous things. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness to the sight of the nations. Now, think about that. In their worship, they're instructing the world that the Lord is righteous and holy, that the Lord brings salvation, that the Lord is great, that there is no one to compare to the Lord. Had you ever thought about your act of worship being instructional to the people around you and to the world at large? Because it is. When we worship, the first and foremost thing that we say is that we are contingent. Now, what do I mean by that? It's kind of a fancy word, kids, that means we absolutely depend on God. If it were not for God, we wouldn't exist And we wouldn't continue to exist. We are absolutely dependent. It's kind of like, for the most part, how the younger among us are dependent on mom and dad. You can't really go where you want to go unless mom or dad drives you, right? You don't really get to eat unless mom or dad 
make you something and put it on a plate. You're dependent upon them. Well, in our lives, we are even more dependent upon the Lord because it's not just about traveling or eating. It's about our very existence. Unless God was our creator, we would cease to exist. And you see, when we worship God, we tell ourselves and the others around us that we're completely dependent on God. The word worship itself even gets to this, because the word worship in the New Testament, really its main meaning is to bow down or even to fall down before someone and do reverence to them. That's what it means to worship God. It means to submit to Him, to say that God is greater than we are, that He is glorious and that we depend on Him. Ultimately, worship is humbling. And that's why most people won't worship. Because we have to be willing to confess that God is greater than we are. And we depend on Him. When we worship, we are instructing others by saying that we can know God. In our worship, we reject the thought that God is somehow unknowable, that God is somehow uncaring. Instead, we declare that God is who He has revealed Himself to be. Notice how Jesus answers the question from the woman in verse 22. He says, We worship what we know. Now, at first glance... If I hadn't told you that Jesus was the one who'd said it, you'd think that's a bit arrogant. What do you mean? You worship what you know. You know God and I don't. But it's actually not arrogant at all. It's actually humbling. Because what Jesus is saying, and what you should say along with him is, we know God because he has revealed himself to us in his word. And we humbly submit to his word. We don't make up who God is. We don't try to think God is this way or God is that way. We instead look to how God has revealed Himself. There are no other options to us. God has revealed Himself in His Word. And this is not arrogance. This is submission to God's Word. Now, we cannot know God exhaustively. That's obvious. I dare say that most husbands can't even know their wives exhaustively. And there is so much more to God. But just because we can't know everything about God does not mean we can't know God truly. Because God has revealed Himself in His Word. So what we do know about God is true. He has revealed Himself. When we worship the Lord our God, we also declare that God has changed us. Because the reason we worship God is because He has come into our lives and changed us. If you think about people, we are the ones who from the very beginning in the garden hid. We are the ones who've run. It is God who has pursued us. It is God who has come into our lives. It is God who has changed us. The Lord our God desires a relationship with us in Jesus Christ. And He has changed us by the work of Jesus. Jesus hints at this in verse 22. We know what we worship. For salvation is from the Jews. 
Do you see the knowledge of God is linked to salvation that comes from God? The reason we know is because God has entered into our life in the person of Jesus Christ and redeemed us from our sins and sent His Holy Spirit to illumine our minds that we would see the truth of God's Word. That is how we know God. Because He's changed us. Well, we are to know and worship the only true God, but we are also to worship God in spirit. That means our worship is to be active. We are to be engaged in worship. Just knowing that we worship the one true God isn't enough. We then need to move on and think about how we worship. And let me give you an encapsulating statement. Worship is not for spectators. The church has struggled with this through the centuries. In the Middle Ages, worship was a spectator sport. There was a professional group of singers and professional musicians and a professional reader of the scripture. And the language of the sermon was even in a different language of the people. And the people just stood or sat and watched the spectacle go by. But the great truth of God's word and worship was refound in the Reformation. And people were encouraged not just to listen to others sing, but to give voice to their own praise in congregational singing. The word of God was to be read and preached in the language of the people so that they could understand and think and write questions and make notes and apply it to their lives. But you see, we still struggle with this today, even beyond the Middle Ages. So often you will go into a modern American church and the lights will come down so you can't read your Bible. And the professionals will come up and sing and you will have to listen. And there may even be no exposition of God's word. It's just something to be experienced. That's not true worship. Worship is to engage the worshiper. Now, I'm not making a statement about what type of beat to be used in the music or what Bible translation to use or what type of light bulbs to have in your sanctuary. But what I am saying is wherever you worship, you must be active and engaged in worship. Worship requires our preparation, our attention, our involvement. It is not a coincidence that each Saturday you receive an email from me describing Sunday's sermon and what we will do in worship with a copy of our bulletin attached. Some of you may know that there's even a little icon next to each of the hymns, and if you click it, it plays the tune. And that's because I want you to prepare for worship. I want you to open up a hymnal and see what we're going to sing, and think about the words, and listen to the tune so that you can sing with gusto and on time. I want you to read the scripture passage that will be read by the elder so you can think about it in advance. I want you to have the Bible text for the sermon open before you so that the day before you could look at a study Bible or ask some questions. Think about it in advance to be prepared to be ready to worship. Worship is active. That's what it means to worship in the Spirit. And worship is also bold. Now, this is just a result of our theology. 
Jesus has purchased our access to God, and because of that, we can go boldly to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4 tells us. We don't need to be ashamed. We don't need to be afraid. We go boldly to the Lord in worship. And to worship in the Spirit means to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And this gives us great confidence in our worship. Have you had the experience, maybe it was today, of saying to yourself, oh, I overslept. I'm not really in a mood to worship. I I, I guess I should just skip today. Or, I'll never be able to worship, I just fought with my husband or my wife. Or my kids spilled milk all over the kitchen table. I'm just not in a frame of mind. There's no way that I will worship today. Maybe someone cut you off in traffic on your way here. The good news to you from the gospel of grace is that you don't need to be in the perfect frame of mind to worship. It doesn't depend on you. You worship in spirit. And that means that the Holy Spirit comes alongside us. He who indwells us deals with our weaknesses and our infirmities. And just like Paul says in the book of Romans, that even when we don't know what to pray for, the spirit knows. When we're not sure how we will worship, the Spirit knows. And the Spirit brings us by faith to the face of God and inhabits our praises. When we worship, it must be active and we must be engaged. We must engage our minds and we must engage our emotions. What does it mean to engage our emotions? Well, Worship is about teaching and learning, but at the same time, it is not a lecture. We are to use our emotions in our worship. Not only is it not wrong to be emotional in worship, it's actually required. Do you see what God says here in the person of Jesus Christ in verse 24? God is spirit, and those who worship Him, what? Must. Worship in spirit and in truth. You must have both. You can't just choose this week to worship in truth. You also can't choose just to worship in spirit. You must worship in spirit and in truth. And this is why Jesus says this. Our whole being is to engage in worship our mind, our emotions, our will. We have to understand that emotions are not bad. God has given us emotions to be made in His image. Now, we can use emotions badly. The fall has affected our emotions just like it's affected our mind. And so we can use emotions improperly, harshly, untimely. But that doesn't mean emotions are bad. It just means we're sinfully using them. And by God's grace, we are to redeem our emotions, just like we are called to renew our mind. When we worship actively, we worship in spirit. And when we worship actively, we worship with others. Worship is a reminder that we are not alone. That you are not out on an island. That you don't have to hold up God's kingdom by yourself. That you don't have to do everything perfectly. Because you have brothers and sisters all around you. Hear their voices as they sing. 
Listen to them as they pray. Look at them as they listen intently to God's word. You are not alone. And this is our ultimate end. Because you see, that's what we see in the book of Revelation. We see God's people gathered together corporately to worship the king. Worshiping in spirit is active, but it is also joyful. Now, it is easy to equate joy just with singing. But joy is a part of singing, but it is much more than that. Joy is a part of our worship. All of our worship is to be done in the context of the joy that God brings to us. We rejoice in what God has done. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. We rejoice that He is the one who gives us refuge. We rejoice that He is the one who has redeemed us through the work of Jesus Christ. We rejoice because He is the one that we can go back to when we have gone lost and astray. Have you ever seen the face of a child who's lost his parents in a store? And then, as he sees in the distance mom or dad, have you ever seen the look of joy that comes across, the look of relief, the look of longing that comes across a child? It's as if the best thing in the world has just happened. That's the way that we should relate to our God. We should rejoice to be in His presence, to know that He is our Heavenly Father, to know that we are needed, to know that we are loved by God. But we also want to rejoice in what God is doing right now in our lives, in the relationship He has with us. There is a a presentness to God in our lives. The Lord has redeemed us because He wants to have a relationship with us now. And so we rejoice because we are not alone. Wherever we go, the Lord, our God, is with us. And then finally, we look forward to what God has promised us in the future. And that brings us joy because we have all of the promises of God laid out in His Word. Part of worship is simply repeating back to God His promises that He has given to us. That's a pretty fair summary of the book of Psalms. The psalmist says, The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. In Psalm 37. The psalmist praises in Psalm 34, The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. You see, we repeat back to God His promises to us because that gives us assurance. It reminds us of God's tender care. Now this kind of worship is sometimes a challenge for those of us who are reformed. Because we tend to equate joy and emotion with being shallow or being light. But if we take God's word seriously, and we should, we should know that over 30 times in the Psalms, God's people are commanded to rejoice and worship the Lord. Our worship must be in spirit. But our worship also must be in truth. 
And that means that Jesus lets us know what God wants from us in worship. That's what it means to worship in truth. Worship in truth is worship that is God-directed. And Jesus clearly links these two concepts together, worshiping in spirit and worshiping in truth. We cannot settle just for one. You cannot roll up here on Gaston Road and say to yourself, you know, I think today I'm just going to worship in spirit. I'm kind of going to ignore the truth part. No, no, no. This week is a truth week. I'm going to ignore this spirit part. No. They must go together. Jesus gives us no option. And this is normal worship. Do you see what Jesus says? He says, the time is coming and is now here. Verse 23. When those who worship God will worship in spirit and in truth. We're not waiting for some event. We're not waiting for something special to happen. The time is right now for you to worship in spirit and in truth. And this is important because the focus on truth can sometimes be lacking in our concepts of modern worship. As a matter of fact, there are times in which worship can seem to be had with no teaching content at all. There is a phrase that has been going around the last generation or so in which we talk about the praise and worship time in a service. As if that's the only time that worship happens. We have some songs and we sing and that's the worship time. And then we move to something else entirely. It might be the prayer time, it might be the teaching time, but it's not the worship time. We know when the praise and worship time is. Jesus tells us, no. We must use our minds as we worship. Worship is according to truth. Those who seek to worship in truth must do so because God has required it. Well, then the next obvious question then is, well, pastor, then what is truth? How do I worship in truth? Well, Psalm 119 says, the sum of your word is truth. Jesus says in John 17, Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And that's just summarizing what we see throughout all of the Bible. To worship in truth means to worship according to God's word, according to God's direction, according to the way the Lord has laid down. And this means that we have God determine our worship. We confess that no one knows better other than God, how God should be worshipped. It also reminds us that our worship is to please God, not us. And you see, if our worship is to please God, then we should listen to God as to what pleases Him in worship. We shouldn't take it upon ourselves to determine what we think God would like best. Have you ever heard the story of the husband that comes home and he gives his wife a birthday gift? He gives her a brand new vacuum cleaner. And he says, I thought you would like this because it's a little dirty around here and this will make your job easier cleaning up. I thought you would like it. Let's just hope there's not a vase within arm's reach of his wife. 
You see, when we tend to put our likes upon someone else, we fall short. How much more would we fall short if we attempt to think for God? We must listen to the Lord and what He says. Now, historically, this has been called the regulative principle of worship. And what it means in a nutshell is, is that God commands how we are to worship. And it shouldn't be a surprise, because what you find in the Bible, how God commands us to worship is, He commands us to sing praise. He commands us to pray. He commands us to read His Word. He commands us to rightly divide His Word and to preach His Word. He commands us to celebrate the sacraments. He commands us to give. Sounds a lot like an ordinary church service, doesn't it? There's a reason why the church has had this form of worship for 2,000 years. Because God has laid it down. And we're not to innovate on that. We're not to bring things up that God has not commanded. Jesus puts it this way in Mark 7. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God says this in Deuteronomy 12, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. There are two stories in the Old Testament that illustrate this very briefly. One is in Leviticus 10. It's the story of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. And they got the good idea it would spruce up the sacrificial worship of God by bringing fire. So they brought some fire into the tabernacle for the worship. And God struck them dead by fire. And you can imagine Aaron was very upset. Anyone whose sons had just been killed. And he went to Moses and Moses looked at him and he said, They did that which the Lord did not command. And there's one of the most poignant verses that comes after that. And it says, And Aaron was silent. And I take that to mean that Aaron understood that God was jealous for his own worship and that God was not to be gainsaid. And you couldn't argue with God over this issue even with the pain of the death of sons. There's another incident described with the Ark of the Covenant and a man named Uzzah. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported in a certain way. It's described in one of those passages in the Bible that you find difficult to read in Leviticus and Numbers. It talks about the Ark being so big and having poles of a certain type of wood, of a certain length, and they're to go through certain rings, and men are to put the poles through the rings, and the Levites are to carry the Ark this way. Well, when the Ark was lost to the Philistines, and when it was on its way back, the Israelites decided, you know what would be way easier than that? Let's get a cart with a donkey and let the donkey do the work. Let's put the ark on the back of the cart and let the donkey and the cart carry it. Why do we need these rings and the poles and all this other stuff? And as the ark was being transported, as happens often with these kinds of carts, the donkey stumbled and the ark began to fall off the cart to the ground. And a man named Uzzah, who was concerned that the ark would fall and be spoiled, ran up to it and put his hand upon it to steady it. And he was immediately struck dead. Because the people of God had ignored God's truth. 
His word. God had explicitly given them directions with the ark and the worship around the ark to do it exactly in a certain way. And it didn't matter that their intentions were otherwise. The fact that they didn't obey God brought tragedy. So what does this mean for us now today? It means we must look to the Lord our God and His Word for our worship. And it means all of the elements of worship that God has laid out, preaching, reading, praying, singing, they are for our benefit. You cannot have worship without the exposition of God's Word. You cannot have worship unless you sing. You cannot have worship unless you pray. God has given these parameters to us so that we might worship Him in accordance with His will. But it also means that we do have some level of liberty within those parameters. God tells us we must sing, but He doesn't tell us which hymn. He even lets the pastor occasionally skip a couple of verses. God tells us we must have an exposition of God's word, but he doesn't say, thou shalt not preach longer than 38 minutes, nor less than 37 minutes. No, we have liberty in that. But we bring to God the worship that he has laid out for us. And that's because in the main, worship is not optional. It is not something that we do when we feel like it. Worship is the goal of the Christian's life. What you are doing here this morning is practice. Do you know how athletes get very good at their craft? They don't just walk onto the basketball court and shoot three-pointers. They don't just walk onto the football field and throw spirals. They don't just walk onto the baseball field and hit 90-mile-an-hour curveballs. No, every single day they practice over and over and over again. That's what your worship is here today. It's practice for what you will be doing for all eternity in glory. That is your main calling as a Christian, to worship and to glorify God. It is all we will do. And this requires us to be a part of a community. It requires us to corporately worship the Lord our God. We must gather together for encouragement to know that we are not alone. We must gather together to be a testimony to each other to worship the Lord our God. Well, our vision for Christ's church does not begin with ourselves. It begins with God. Just as each person was made to glorify God, each church exists to worship Him. And our vision here at Christ Church is that you would worship the one true God and that you would worship Him in spirit and worship Him in truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are indeed the faithful one. That You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word that there is no one like You. Lord, we ask this morning that by faith you would draw us ever closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. That by the work of your Holy Spirit you would bless us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.